So Nigel Roby is the chief executive of the bookseller. Yeah. And uh, what does that mean that you're the chief executive? Well, uh, I'm, a, I'm actually owner and chief executive okay. uh, and publisher. So uh, I'm overall in charge of everything that we do. And everything that we do, the bookseller now, is, is the weekly magazine. It's the website. We have three conferences. Uh, we run the YA Book Prize, Young Adult Book Prize. Uh, and we run the R- British Book Awards. So I'm in overall charge of those, although, of course, you know, you know that's quite a lot. So we have about 24 of us here doing those things, with Philip Jones as the editor and Emma Lowe as director of publisher relations, but you know, a very experienced team across the board. Yeah. Um, and did you I, buy it from someone? You must yeah, the, the bookseller, I mean, the, the bookseller, of course, is, is, is 160 years old this year, first started by the Whitaker family. Whitaker family sold it uh, to what was then called VNU, uh, which then later became Nielsen, the, the big market research company. And they ran it until 2010, spring 2010. But they had announced in 2009 that they wanted to get out of uh, media and concentrate wholly on research. They were 95% a research company. So in the States, they had some very big B2B titles, Billboard, uh, probably being the, the most famous of them. Yeah. Um, what about Publishers Weekly? That's not connected No, Publishers Weekly uh, wasn't connected with them. Publishers Weekly was part of Reed Exhibitions, but in a, in a funny way, Reed had done exactly the same thing. They decided uh, that they wanted to be an exhibitions first company, so they wanted to get out of most of their media operations. So actually... George, who, who runs and owns Publishers Weekly and I, did a management buyout within a few, almost a, within a few weeks of each other. There was some weird serendipity thing going on. Mm. Um, so you'd so, worked for Nielsen? So, yeah, so yeah. I, I'd run it. I'd started uh, running um, the books. I had this fantastic job title, which was Managing Director Literary Division. And I ran uh, the bookseller in the UK and Kirkus Reviews in the States. So I was running it, uh, and yeah, I, I did a management buyout when when Nielsen wanted to get out of media. They didn't want to get out of uh, the book business. They still have a very strong book data and book scan business uh, called Nielsen Book, but specifically media, they wanted out of. Okay. So, so it, it made for a very uh, easy, seamless transition. Kind of you and your bankers, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it meant that it, it, it worked kind of really well for everyone because you know all the folk working here, kind of nothing changes mm. changed. Uh, and in fact, we stayed uh, in Nielsen's offices for I don't know eighteen months or something like that. So literally, you know, the day after, nothing changed except mm. the kind of the you know the name above the door. So why did the, the Whitakers, you say? Yeah, the Whitakers were the, the original uh, Victorian family. So, it's yeah. Why did they found it in the first place? What need were they filling? Well, they were, I forget the exact title of the, uh, the bookseller, or the subtitle of the bookseller at the time. I can, I can dig it out. I've got it here somewhere. Um, but it, it was to provide news and, to a certain extent, reviews of books that were coming out and important they probably said happenings within the book trade. 
it, it wasn't, or, or the name always causes confusion, it wasn't specifically for what we would now call bookshops, you know, partly because there was less of a divide between booksellers and publishers there. They were same doing the thing. same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was an information source uh, to tell the trade uh, about new books that were coming out. So it would, in, other words, in other words, it would help inform the booksellers so that they could then inform their customers. That's it. And of course, you know, just as it does today, it informed publishers about what their rivals uh, were up to, which they wouldn't necessarily know about. So, uh, so things like? Well, you know, I, sp- I mean, there's a classic case of, you know, I don't know, you know, whoever you are, you know, if you've, if you've just been the publisher of George Eliot's Mill on the Floss, then, you know, you don't want to know that Charles Dickens, I don't even know whether I've got those dates right, but let's <laughs> pretend I have. Okay. You don't want to know that Charles Dickens has got a book coming out on the same day, do you? So... What, what's the modern equivalent of that? You know, it's something like, uh, I don't know, Lee Child you know, and James Patterson or Lee Child and J.K. or something, not having a book coming out on, on the exact same Thursday. Um, so... It's hmm, so a uh, coordination then. A coordination, yeah. I mean, there are a lot fewer books then coming out yeah, now, yeah, less yeah. of an issue. But yeah, I mean, and that was, it was the first time that that had happened. So it was... It was more of a kind of a quasi catalogue than what we would think of now as a magazine. And as Whitaker's developed uh, the business, they increasingly sort of moved up. Probably, I would say, I'd have to look back in the archives, but probably as the sort of the the 50s and 60s progressed, you know, there became a greater divide between the data side of things and which the, means uh, what. So this is things like you know, all of the details behind a book, you know, when it's coming out, who the author is, all of that metadata, what we would now say is metadata. Okay. Um, so, because there were so many books coming out, you couldn't put them all in the same place. So I, I remember when I was working in a bookshop uh, in South East England in my teens, um, these giant books that Whitaker used to produce, which were, I think, called books in print. I'm not sure what their frequency was, whether they were annual or whatever. But these were huge clumping things. These were thousands of pages that you waded through to find out the name of the book that the customer had just asked you about. Um, You couldn't put all of that lot in a magazine in the way you could in the 1850s. People from the magazine would solicit information from all of the various publishers and put it together and then send it out once a month. Yeah, I mean, initially, it's mainly been weekly across the years, but I suspect when it first came out, it probably was, probably was monthly. Let's have a look. Oh, here we go. Designed to be a handbook of British and foreign literature. Doesn't that sound grand? A reviewing and bibliographic journal. Diddly bomb. Not not immediately obvious whether it was... Yeah, okay. It came out regularly, though. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, it, okay. and it's been published regularly ever since. It, 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 it's never dropped the ball, even during the war, uh, Second World War. Uh, the booksellers' offices were bombed. The issue came out. Yeah, it's, it's that, uh, what is it, past? Paternoster Square. Yeah, yeah, there were millions of books that were there, destroyed. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. And there were, there were a lot of publishers in that area. Yeah, it was yeah. the Blitz. Yeah. 29th of December, 1940. Yeah, and the, the bookseller... And the tall building of J. Whitaker and the bookseller at 12 Warwick Lane. 
along with all the paper's records. Um, but the bookseller appeared on schedule on 2nd of January 1941. It showed, in Geoffrey Faber's phrase, not a hair out of place. Didn't that sound fantastic? So, yeah. Uh, okay, so so booksellers subscribe to it, publishers subscribe to it. Agents. Bibliophiles, I guess. Bibliophiles, uh, yeah, there are no, there agents. Agents. There weren't that many back then. There was not lots, back, right? Yeah. And uh, back then, I would say it was probably publishers would probably have been the, the single largest constituent. I would have thought. Okay. I mean, the bookselling market would have been, of course, of course, very different, you know, and probably a lot around Charing Cross Road. But you know, it, it would always been a, have been more about the publisher. So uh, the readers today then, same idea? Kind of the same. You know, what, what would be the different things now? Um, you would, you'd, you'd have a, many, many different types of reader within a publishing firm, really. you know, whether it's the new stuff like the digital guys, um, you know, was marketing a function back in the 1850s? I kind of doubt it. You've got bookshops, you've got chain bookshops. You, of course, you'd have supermarkets now, you know. So, yeah. you know, all the buyers in a Tesco or an Asda or whatever would read the bookseller. Not an issue at all uh, back then. You, you've got the literary agents, more of them, as you point out. You've got bookshops, you've got publishers, you've got agents. Libraries, the public library market, which has been under massive, relentless cost-cutting pressure over here, which I, I know in in the states it is it is regarded, I think, with a, a degree more civic pride. I don't know what the, the situation is in Canada, but um, you know, it is it is not necessarily that local authorities do not want libraries there, but they are under such cost pressures that they have to find things to give. And, it's, and it's a very sorry situation. It is, yeah. because libraries are much more than just lending books. You yeah, know. They are completely. Uh, and you know, time after time, you know, this, this issue is raised within Parliament. Um, and there are very well-known uh, lobbyists as writers who can point to their own experience. As uh, you know, What person can't point to their own experience, even if it's just going along to... You know, a kid's reading thing. Do you take uh, an editorial position on this? Yeah, we do. Uh, we even run a, a Facebook channel uh, called Fight for Libraries. Um, no, we take a very uh, strong view of it. We regard libraries as an essential part of a civilised society, so mm -hmm. we back it to the hilt. Uh, we think the mm -hmm. cuts are entirely wrong. So you're we, really speaking out on behalf of your constituency too, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it is on behalf of constituency, of course it is. But actually it is more of a civic thing. Because if people don't have that connection with books you know, across all walks of life, the last thing you want is somehow for books to become kind of for the favoured few. They've got to be for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tougher. Pressure on household budgets are tougher. So if you then undermine all of that by cutting back on the libraries as well... So who's responsible for cutting it? Well, it's a central government issue. It is, it, is the, it, it is the overall amount of money that goes from central to local government okay. gradually gets squeezed. The demands on local authorities get ever increased, so something has to give. So yeah. the local authorities, councils, you know, have to make decisions about how they're going to spend their money. You know, there is a statutory responsibility to provide a, a full library provision, but you know, there's been some slipperiness about what a full provision might be so mm. uh, so cuts have come yeah. and what's happened is that some of the smaller libraries 
have closed, some small libraries have been turned into volunteer-run uh, libraries. And you have to commend the volunteers for putting their time in, but it shouldn't be run by volunteers. It should be yeah. better. It's, one sees it in so many parts of society, but you know, our beef is with the libraries part of it, the book-related yeah. part of it. Others can beef about other bits. Um, the fact that you, uh, your readership is both booksellers and book publishers, does that make it difficult to speak out on behalf of either one of them? Difficult's probably too strong. You know, I think we're always very aware that we, that we have a number of constituencies, we have a kind of number of stakeholders, and we have to be aware of the fact that for large chunks of the time, their interests are, are the same. But for other times, yes, you know, it isn't. You know, there are problems. You know, if there is a massive discounting over here and indie bookshops over here don't want any discounting. There's we, only we, one chain though now, right? There's only there's only one major chain, yeah, Waterstones. Yeah. That also has, has tensions. Yeah, we we like everybody else in the trade breed a massive sense of relief. First, when Alexander Mahmood bought the Waterstones chain when it was looking very vulnerable, which I can't even remember, maybe, what was that, seven years ago? Yeah, um, 2011, yeah. Oh, I got that right. I don't normally yeah, get my dates on. right. Yeah, um, <laughs> and now, of course, you know, it, it has it sort of wanted to, to, to sell out um, and has, Watson's has now been sold. You know, it is a massively important thing. Sometimes... Some of the indies would deem Watsons to be in competition with them, and I completely get that. You know, yeah. if it's too yeah. close or if it's in the same town, you know, it is very hard uh, for an indie. It's not impossible. You take a town like Bath, which, of course, you know, is is a well-to-do area. You have Mr. B's Emporium of Books, fantastic indie. You have Toppings, a small chain there. Lovely you have Watsons. Um, yeah. You know, you got it all. It is of sufficient size to be able to accommodate the, them all. I think the. The, the position we would take on Waterstones is, you know, A, you know, let's look at the readers, the purchasers. You know, that's a lot of people buying books from Waterstones. That's a good thing. And if Waterstones is not on the high street, then book selling becomes pretty invisible on most high streets. That has a knock-on effect for indies. You know, it may be slightly further down the line you know, compared to the, the pressures if you've got a Waterstones five miles away. But ultimately, it is to the greater good to have Waterstones sitting there. And they're great shops as well. They're, yeah, um, yeah so. they've really turned themselves around too. Yeah. Funnily enough, I was looking back at uh, some of the old history of the books and our coverage and sort of I, I spotted somewhere the, a picture of the opening of the first uh, Waterstones in, in 1982. And Tim Waterson actually has got his he's got his memoirs coming out in oh, early next year. I think oh, it's in February. I think I think it's Atlantic Publishing. So so if Tim's listening, uh, you know, yeah, I'm on an invite to the launch party. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Toby Faber's apparently yeah. finishing off uh, as you okay. would know yeah. a, a history of Faber. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that'll be fascinating. Yeah. And of yeah. course, you know, they've just had a fantastic triumph at the Booker. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we touched on the fact that there's a monopoly, really, with this with Waterstones. Well, no, I I, I think monopoly is actually completely the wrong. One is much closer to a monopoly uh, if you look at um, our friends from Seattle, because you know the the pressures on the high street um, are massively increased for indies 
and for Waterstones, not because of Waterstones, it's not remotely uh, a monopoly, but by the, the pressures from Amazon, which of course has a massive, massive percentage of the ebook market. Mm. But uh, isn't Waterstones selling Kindle? No, no, it they it, were. It, it, it did uh, not originally. Then there was a deal done, but then very publicly it exited from that arrangement. That feels like about three years ago, possibly even more. So definitely not. Um, and and I think over the last couple of years, certainly, as publishers and bookshops have seen where ebooks fit into the overall market. Yeah, it seems um, to be leveling off. It, it has leveled off, and, and but that, that leveling off was a good two years ago. Okay. So you've got a combination of that. So the uncertainty slightly disappears. And as soon as you can take some uncertainty, I mean, there's lots of uncertainty. You know, we've got it over here with Brexit, you know, talking about uncertainty. Yeah. But in that instant, in that context, some uncertainty was removed. People find it easier to plan if there's less uncertainty. But what you had at the same time was, I think, a renewed sense of self-confidence amongst bookshops in, and publishers in printed books. And I think publishers have done a great job of increasing or improving the production values of books. Um, I think if you look now or a couple of years ago compared to 10, 15 years ago, production values, design values mm -hmm. are massively improved. And at the same time, you've got bookshops feeling more confident about their place, feeling more confident, both parties feeling more confident, that actually, you know, the world's not going to change. It's not all going to be e-books. Actually, people like print books and to sort of not feel somehow oh you know we're a bit dinosaur like no mm. it's a thing that people want if people want it they'll mm. come and buy it sell it to them ice cream's old-fashioned i don't see anyone not wanting to have ice cream i don't know why i came up with ice cream that's there. good that's though yeah, good. yeah okay Who doesn't ice like cream ice an cream? analogy okay it's funny i just interviewed she's an essayist over in when i was in vermont just a couple of weeks ago and fadiman and i think one of her short stories is called ice cream guys. What are some, some of the pressing issues, then, that are facing booksellers and book publishers? Any, I mean, we've talked about the obvious competition from, yeah. from Amazon. Yeah. What, what else is hot? With bookshops in particular, yeah, it, it, is, it is the high street itself. And that is a, a, a two-pronged problem. Uh, I'll probably now come up with three prongs, but let's say it's two. You've got the cost of being in the high street and what we over here call business rates. Uh, and business rates are incredibly high. And there's an unfairness there because business rates for a, a, an out-of-town warehouse, whether it's Amazon or anyone else's warehouse, are relatively minuscule. So you have a disparity there. It is much more expensive to trade on the high street. And that's not just the physical kind of cost of of your rent and you know you've got to you know, put shelves up and make it look nice and people want to come in and staffing and so on yep. but it is it is the rates that the council charges councils are under pressure because the high street generally is under attack so they're getting less income this is another squeeze that indirectly then affects the libraries that we talked about earlier but at the moment in the high street you've got shops going out of business uh, only this morning it's announced that Debenhams, one of our big chain stores, uh, doesn't sell any books, thank goodness, likely to cut, I think it's something like 20 branches. We've had House of Fraser, you know, iconic high street brands going. And the kind of the, 
the casual dining bit of the market, which I think is the technical term, Jamie's, Jamie Oliver's, branches, that sort of thing, there have been loads of cuts there. So you've got the high street has to work so much harder to be an attractive destination. There are certain towns where it's just not. So then you have a footfall issue. So that's a pressure on shops. So you've got an unfairness thing and you've got a pressure thing. Now, that, of course, then impacts on publishers. Um, and there's been a sea change over the last few years. Publishers' responsiveness to the needs of the high street bookseller, whether that's an indie shop or whether that's Waterstones or whether it's Blackwell's. Blackwell's having a great time at the moment. They're, so, they're more than, how many, how many outlets do they have? Oh, gosh. I'm going to get phoned up afterwards. I think it's about 30. Oh, and the, Versus the, about 300 for... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different kettle of fish because um, Blackwell's still is very strong in the, in the campus bookshop market. But uh, if you take their flagship store in Broad Street, or Broad as they call it in Oxford, you know, that, that is a general store, as well as being a, a, an academic um, shop. But they're doing fantastically well. And they're doing fantastically well incidentally, at online sales as well as physical sales. Um, and I get the sense that there is a willingness for people to go to their preferred bookseller bookseller in physical terms for their online purchasing as well, yeah. if that uh, particular seller does a good job and that's they not want all to about them. price yeah yeah, um, yeah and you know all parties have got much better about integrating their loyalty cards and those sorts of things Waterstones has just uh, upgraded theirs but lots of lots of the indies do this stuff extremely well as well uh, one i mentioned earlier uh, in bath mr b's you know i mean it's got a great scheme you know it's got a i'm, I'm probably using the wrong term they shout at me for it but a sort of subscription type model yeah model. kind of a loyalty well, more than that, it's a kind of it's them putting their experience and know-how and enthusiasm to play, and saying, "Well, we will choose books for you." So it it is that sort of book club there. So we will recommend everyone, books for everyone. Does it slightly differently? Right. But I mean, there is there is something of a sea change, I think, in terms of uh, how well physical retailers can do at selling books online. And we have a thing here in the, in the UK, maybe it's the same term throughout the world, the whole click and collect thing. So you can do your online order, but you pick it up in store. That's a great benefit because then you know, you've always got a chance or the bookseller's got a chance that then you're going to make a secondary purchase when you're in there. So but how, but so the pressures are, you know, the pressures are there, uh, but the pressures, I would say, are mostly coming from the, the, the general high street situation. I think indie bookshops, and we've had, we've had some new... Uh, the trend of closures is, if not reversed, but certainly plateaued. There's some new shops coming out. I think it's, with, it's either this weekend or on next weekend. There's a new one down in Bristol. Story Smith, if I've got that name right. So that it's an upbeat thing, but in the context of a tough high street. Um, anything that affects physical retailers affects publishers. So... In t just in terms of improving their online presence or sales, anything else that they're doing that's, that's improving that, other than the fact that there's this connection between you know, the purchaser wanting to support the fact that this retailer is a presence in their community yeah. and adding a cultural destination and that kind of thing? I, I think 
it is a general thing, but I think broadly they are playing to their strengths that it's not all about an algorithm. Right. You know, and of course, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got a big site, you know, you've got a Watersons or a Blackwells, you know, of course, you know, there's automated technology behind it that's going to put a kind of, well, if you're about to buy this book, well, you might want to have a look at that book. But, but, but it is coming from a, you know, a full-on bookseller, you know, someone with experience. And I, I think there are design issues. You know, I suspect if you looked at the Blackwell site now compared to the Blackwell site six or seven years ago, you know, you would be greatly impressed with the, the changes that have been made. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's anything that is particularly specific about what they've done. I think they're just working it a bit more. Um, mm. Okay. And just what about the, uh, the Amazon attacks situation? They were what, sort of headquartered in Luxembourg. Yeah. Is that still... That, is that about all, to all, all of the... <laughs> with Brexit going, who the hell knows? <laughs> um, but, but generally, the, the pressures... Let me put it slightly differently. Um, in the UK, the, the associations, in this case particularly the Booksellers Association, has, has kept up the pressure on via the EU. Yeah, and something like this, it is best served within an EU context. One country can't do anything very specifically. Is to say that in the UK terms, the rates, the business rates thing that is, is wrong, and in uh, tax terms, you know, overall tax, corporation tax, we would call it over here, you know, that it is unfair for large global corporations to shift their money around and not seem to pay a fair share anywhere. That's not particularly an Amazon thing uniquely. It's, mm -hmm. it's true of all global corporations. And, and everywhere across the world, all national governments are struggling with, well, how can we do this? Partly because a lot of these companies are bigger than a lot of countries. So, so those are still very, very live issues. Yeah. There's an interesting one that's just going through now. Uh, there's been uh, an EU directive that countries within the EU, if they so wish, can normalise the VAT rates, the value-added tax rates, between print and digital books and magazines. So we've had the situation in the UK where print books are zero rated for VAT, um, but digital books, e-books, uh, and in fact any digital offering, digital magazine, the bookseller, um, mm. for instance, is has to have a 20% uh, VAT added. So you've got mm. some, some price... So again, that, that, that favours the printed product. Then. Well, I don't think that does. Uh, it it favours the printed product, but it, it it makes for confusion in the market. You know, why am mm. I spending? You know, why does this cost more? Why am I getting mm. tax added? You know, it's the same thing, isn't it? You know, one's print, one's digital. Why is it different? And we have we have, we have it on well all B two B magazines, presumably consumer yes, consumer magazines as well. You know, it, you have, if you're selling a digital edition of it, you have to apply VAT. Well, the person's buying the digital edition because of the convenience of it. You know, it's not a price point issue, it's a convenience issue if they're out on the road. And this is what you know, all the national newspapers have done with the Times and so on. So having this, this different pricing structure because of uh, a centrally applied tax is, is anomalous. Um, so it will make it a lot simpler to sell, it's a lot simpler to market. In e-book terms, yeah, prices may come down, and that might create another little bit. Blip. Mm. And we've now seen this is not a print versus e, these things work in tandem. So if there's a little bit of a price advantage, 
a, a price reduction coming out of e-books, that wouldn't be a bad thing. But yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Um, hasn't happened yet, but the, the directive has gone out um, and the Publishers Association are, are lobbying hard that the UK government should adopt this and, and get to zero. Fundamentally, it is a tax on reading. So mm. that is what both the book side, the Publishers Association, and the magazine side, the Professional Publishers Association, are both lobbying hard to get to zero rating uh, on VAT on books and magazines. So there's actually quite a lot of legislative type stuff going on at the mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. Any other hot topics or issues that you think will rumble through the next number of years? I don't think so necessarily sort of one sort of single huge thing, but I think there are there are lots of smaller things where no one quite knows how things will play out. Yeah, it, it's it's almost boring now, but the biggest thing, of course, for us is is Brexit, um, and how that will impact. There would appear to be already uh, an effect um, on the cost structure as the pounds changes value in relation to the euro, where you are getting uh, books printed in Italy. Primarily, is that where most of the British books are printed. Well, days? you got uh, if if you're talking about colour books, then you're still talking about the Chinese market probably being the yeah. single bigger one. Probably at the upper end, maybe middle and upper end. Italy has always been a really strong uh, colour printer. Um, well, Czech Republic. Oh no, no, you Hamlin, got me. Because uh, that's where Paul Hamlin went, to, okay. and that was a big revolution with, with the colour and colour books. Uh, now well, your history knowledge is a lot better than mine on that. Oh, so yeah. I don't know. I don't know on the Czech market. Yeah. I, I, I don't particularly think of it. But maybe it has been superseded by the Chinese market. Yeah, um, that sounds, I mean, sounds about this right. This is colour stuff, of course. In black yeah. and white terms, you know, you you need. Local printers you need the, the UK. Why is that? Fast turnaround. You need to get the books done quickly. But so books typically take, that's the thing about books, they take a long time. It not takes so about a year no, to get. No, 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 no. Not so. Well, maybe, maybe uh, from announcement through to print. But I mean, if you take now uh, the booker winner, uh, Milkman, uh, Faber, up the print run probably that night, yes. and up again and up again. Uh, it's certainly six figures now, yeah. 100,000 plus. Um, that it has gone up by, you know, those books are being done, you know, that will, I'm not sure which of the printers, it'll be Clay's or CPI, I think, and, you know, those books are getting out there now. So, actually, those turnaround terms have really come down. And it's been, it's probably been a problem for the printers because the bookshops uh, are, are taking less upfront orders or they're, they're reducing those upfront order numbers. So, you know, they're not, as pile them high, and of course you, know, you had chains like Borders, which were a big pile them high. Of course, that disappears out of the market. So there's been a change in the ordering process from the from the book selling side. Printers have adapted um, to having shorter shorter run, more frequent runs, rather than well, let's bash out a hundred thousand right from day one mm -hmm. and potentially end up pulping them. Um, so that's become a much more of a management issue for book printers mm. um, but you know that's what everyone's used to now and most of the time you don't have those kind of supply chain issues that sounds a grotty term in terms of mm. the, the book trade but mm. supply chain issues where suddenly there's a buzz and there aren't the books in the shops to be able to meet it so mm -hmm. some of that of course can be replaced with print on demand stuff and you know people like Ingram have, have 
made massive, massive steps forward on that. But that doesn't particularly affect the kind of the mainstream book market. It certainly doesn't affect, obviously, the you know the big colour, the hardback stuff. But um, but yeah, I mean, a, a straightforward Faber and Faber paperback you know, is going through regular channels, book printers. But those book printers have got a lot faster at dealing with turnaround. Mm. Um, so and they still turn out. They're still able to maintain a. A high standard of quality, too. Yeah, and as we were saying earlier, I think I think that's that standard has improved markedly mm-hmm. compared to a decade ago. So that that's that's all good. So I, I forget what we were talking about. I think we, we were, were talking, talking about issues about, that you know that was you know it, it's again it's part of the the Brexit thing that affects the the pricing model mm. you know, and you know, an area that I that is certainly. Philip, uh, our editor, would be much, much stronger than I would. But the whole issues around territoriality and rights within different territories, sales of physical books within those territories, you know, is is a complex issue, and, I, and I'm not equipped to talk about it very mm. coherently. Mm. But is you know is certainly bubbling under, and you know the Australian market is a very interesting one because it's got those sorts of issues to deal with but it's got Amazon you know Amazon have been there via the book depository before but uh, is there now physically more so that international dimension of it all and you've got publishers with different strategies Harper Collins's global strategy with different to say PRHs or Hachette's you know, in, in our UK market so i think that that all gets very Interesting. You know, then you have localized issues. You know, and this year with 50 years the, of the Booker, uh, started in '68. I was reading about the the launch of it then, which has come under a lot of scrutiny because obviously 50 years is, is something that you know, everyone's going to pick up on, and I'm sure they they've put out a lot of interesting stuff on it. But it then focuses attention. Now there'll have been some stuff in that debate that I'm sure the Booker folk wouldn't, or Man Booker, sorry, my apologies, um, wouldn't have wanted to... You don't, don't want to forget the sponsor. No, no. Um, uh, and, um, and what a great sponsor they have been. But So you want the coverage, but it then focuses on the books. I actually think fundamentally it's a good thing. You know, the debate rages, you know, should American books been allowed in mm. should they not have been allowed in would this definitely have been the not. year you're definitely not okay mm. so you're a canadian the, i think the good thing about it is is that it is focused attention back on books controversy uh, it's yeah buzz. and and if it was in a sense a regular year of the booker and there hadn't been the issues would the winner have attracted quite so much attention i'm not sure it would so i think it you know i think a little bit of controversy has been fantastically good for the booker this year mm. you know where it goes with that debate in in uh, in forthcoming years I, I don't know you know but thank god it's there first you know booker group initially in 68 and the man group since um you know, that's yeah. a vitally important part of what we were doing i had the great experience um you, know, you, you sit down, you don't know who you're going to be sat next to. And I was sat next to a lady who is a specialist bookbinder. And I don't mean the kind of like, you know, we've got you know, bound mm. editions of the bookseller here. Not everyday stuff like this, but real hardcore, you know, one-off that's works the kind of, of art. That's the kind uh, of people that I, I, I go after and yeah. I want to talk to them. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, art of the book. Yeah. yeah. I mean... So each of the the shortlisted books have they a special edition. Bound, she's the yeah. one that did them. She, she did one. You know, uh, okay, they get right. they get six uh, yeah. specialist 
Book is there. Uh, and I went I went onto her, her site and had a look. I think the lady's name is, is Kate Hunt. I'm going to now check that on my phone. But that was fascinating. I, I, I knew, but I'd forgotten that they did that. And I think it's a really, yeah. really nice touch. Well, I love the fact that they're tying it into the, as I say, the, the book arts and uh, the fact that there's all sorts of wonderful tradition involved in bookmaking. Yeah. No, it wasn't. Kate Hunt, so I'm now going to have to figure out what (laughs) the name was. Oh dear, how embarrassing. I was going to ask you about just in winding up the uh, your conferences. Are they uh, are they uh, and and also just business in general? Is it is it booming? Is it uh, (laughs) compared to ten years ago? Is it where are you? No, it's 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 reduced compared to ten years ago. Sadly. Because the bookseller has always been in this fan- fantastically um, isolated position. You know, the book trade goes through this massive disruption, mm. i.e., the trade that we serve. But the media business has also gone through a massive change. Yeah. You know, and we're a media business, so you know, let's have two waves hitting us. Why not? Um, <laughs> so we've had to work blooming hard to sort of keep going and, and to prosper. Um, Who are your big advertisers? The main publishers. They so publish, they're promoting their books? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, so I think on, on the, I think the front cover of the issue that will be coming uh, into the office in a couple of hours, I think, is probably going to be HarperCollins. I, th- I think it's the new David Walliams book, uh, children's book, coming out. Fantastic supporters of the bookseller. It is the big publishers, um, big and medium publishers. Those, those are our biggest customers. What about Waterstones? Do they advertise? Watson's don't advertise, you know, there'd be no reason for Watson's sure to advertise. Yeah. They're subscribers of ours. We know my local uh, store in, in southwest of London, in a town called Guildford, I was chatting to the manager there, and you know, I know how she uses uh, the bookseller, and I, I really love knowing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a nice shop. If you're ever in Guildford, go yeah. there. Well, so. that's the neat thing, is too. They're, they're not all cookie-cutter. They're, no. they're crafted to... to serve each different market absolutely right which is um, great yeah and, and you have to you know uh, yeah well, that's, that's, that's very different to yeah. in, in north london and that um, explains their success yeah yeah so i mean customers across the board it, it's the publishers it's it's the, it's the bookshops the bookshop chains you know not necessarily for advertising but for subscribing the conferences are primarily going to be the publishers and, and we do three conferences we do future book which as it sounds is is future leaning it's not just digital books you know it's different ways of approaching the book business and helping it to prosper um and kind of underneath everything we do at the bookseller you know fundamentally it's about how can we help get more books in the hands of more readers you know and that's what our customers do be they publishers or bookshops or libraries so anything we do, we try and add value to that proposition, that through analysis, through celebration, through whatever. So the conference is a, a, a big deal for us. We, we had our children's conference just a couple of weeks ago. That was a great success, very buzzy. Our future book at the end of November always, I mean, I think it's something like Europe's biggest conference outside of the kind of the, the big trade fairs. And our big deal... Our biggest deal comes in in May of each year when we run the British Book Awards, which has both the kind of the what we would call the trade categories, so indie bookshop of the year, publisher of the year, but also the books of the year. And we introduced 
Author of the Year and Illustrator of the Year. So Illustrator of the Year was was something new that we yeah, did this great. year. Mm -hmm. Axel Scheffler uh, was the first, the inaugural winner. Now you need Book Designer of the Year. Well, the problem is every time we do anything, someone pops up and says, well, we need this and yeah. we need that. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, we'll be going on until three in the morning soon. So that's uh, a very important part of our business, but also one where we feel very privileged that we've been trusted um, mm -hmm. by the trade to... To, to represent it. How can uh, listeners subscribe? Well, just straight go to thebookseller.com and we, we operate on a freemium model, the classic freemium model. So there's a certain amount that you can read on the website for free. Uh, once you reach a certain point, then we'll say, mm, it'd be nice if you could give us some money and it's just click on the appropriate links at that point. So, so what, you get five or six articles a month? Kind of? I think you get three before we ask you to register. So you can just turn up uh, and look and you don't, we don't even need an email from you. Three in, I think, and then I think another half dozen or something like that, you know, and then we'll ask you to make. Certain things that, you know, no one you know, except subscribers can get. You can't get the hardcore analysis. You can't get the charts. You can't get the data. You can't get book previews because what we do is we preview each week in print and that then goes online uh, each week is, is different so fiction previews for three four months ahead children's books coming out in three four months time in, in the following week non-fiction and paperback you know, so none of the hard hardcore stuff you know, is available unless you subscribe um, but yep. a certain amount of the, the news is available because we want people to know about it and there's a lot of stuff that we that we want to amplify messages out there so for instance world book day big thing in the uk a fantastic thing we we actually hosted the the launch of which books are going to be the world book day titles in march of next year live from the office here on a facebook live thing with the uh with the world book day team uh that's great so of course you don't want to limit that you want to push that out to as many people as are going to hear it and see it yeah do you more or less cover the UK and Publishers Weekly covers the US? or Well, both of us would cover international markets, but coming from a home base. Um, okay. So there's plenty of stuff that we do on the Australian market, the Irish market, um, and so on. And of course, when it comes around to the international book fairs, so it was just recently Frankfurt, so we're full on international and we produce a daily newspaper for the Frankfurt Book Fair, just as we produce a daily for London Book Fair and for Bologna Children's Book Fair, and indeed for Beijing uh, Book Fair. So, and they would and, do book expo. Across yeah, yeah. yeah. PW will do book expo primarily, although they're in London, they're in Frankfurt as well. We reach a certain amount of commonality, but we're coming right. at it from our kind of home bases, as it were. Yeah. Um, and of course, sounds like you need both if you want to get the whole world. It, there's no way you could just rely on us for anything about America and vice yeah, versa right, uh, right. Uh, with okay. PW about the UK. You know, you know, it's a it's a big old sector. You know, not least by the, the number of if you regard a book as a product, which I don't, but how else do you describe it? The yeah. number of product new products every year. I mean, it's colossal. So yeah, what um, is it? Do you know? Well, in the UK, we always reckon about 150,000, but yeah. God knows. You know, yeah. frankly, with the amount of self-published, you know, haven't got a clue. I think it's supposed to be about 150,000 if you count books that have got ISBNs on them. Good. And, and how's, uh, the, how's the Canadian market? Let me ask you. Well, it's, uh, I guess the big thing there is that uh, Penguin Random House is kind of colossal. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, HarperCollins and much smaller Simon & Schuster and then a bunch of independents. So 
I know a lot of authors are kind of uptight about that setup. Yeah. But other than that, I guess I guess you'd know in terms of any Canadian author that, that sort of busts through on the international scene. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I think Canada is certainly trying to to work to push its authors, its books internationally. Yeah, they've got Frankfurt in 2020. That's right. Um, And the the Kundil History Prize has been very visible uh, over here this year. I went to a reception at Canada House Mm. for that. So I I think Canada certainly seems... Yeah, maybe I hadn't noticed it before, but it seems to have a bit more of an export head-on at the moment. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, well, it's all around that Frankfurt is building up to yeah. that. I think. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, thank you. My pleasure. My uh, pleasure. It's been good fun. To um, have met you and uh, got a bit more insight into what you're doing and in our ever, never-ending quest to uh, understand and learn about the book. Yeah. Thanks again. Pleasure. Nigel, I should say your name is Nigel Roby, and yeah. you are the owner and chief exec of the bookseller. Very good in London, overlooking the Houses of Parliament. Over, yeah, looking down there over the Thames. I had a scary phone call from the landlord yesterday. I thought he was going to say, "Oh, <laughs> you know, the lease is coming to an early end," but in fact, he wanted to extend it. Yeah, we have a nice view, and on a sunny day in London, which is something of a rarity, um, it's a great view from here. So. Thanks again. Pleasure.